Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Matthew 19, 1-6. This is the word of God. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea, beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Go ahead and take a seat. I want to have you sit for a minute, and I want to open with a couple of words before I pray for us this morning and this message The best way that I can start this sermon is with a very personal word to each of you, as one of your pastors. You know, it's no accident that these verses appear in this place in Matthew. The Holy Spirit knew that the absolute best place for Jesus to address the beautiful design and the crushing pains of marriage was after, right after a deep look into the realities and commands that we've just covered. If we're to humbly address the sin we see in another's Christian life, to restore them to God and to ourselves, marriage needs it most. If we're to humble ourselves in repentance of sin brought to us, marriage needs it most. If we're to humble ourselves and offer real, costly forgiveness when someone wrongs us in a big way, marriage needs it most. We need to grow in long-suffering in marriage. And also to know when God declares a marriage to be broken and allows us to return to being single or to remarry without sinning. Dear brothers and sisters, today is not theoretical or intellectual. It's real. I know most of you. And I know that some of you are single and considering marriage. So please listen very carefully today. I know that many of you are married and are struggling, some even considering divorce. And I know how hard marriage can be. Anyone who's been married for any length of time knows that. But please include God in every step you take. Some of you are divorced and single, Still others have divorced and remarried. You've lived through that pain and are still affected by it today on some level. You probably worry that other people here at Orchard judge you, that you're a second-class citizen in God's kingdom. Well, hear this. You are not. And if any of us are tempted to throw the first stone at each other, May we turn around and look at our own marriages, our own glass houses, and how many pains we have broken at our own hands. Unfortunately, we've all sinned greatly against our spouse. 
But thankfully, we can all enjoy God's rich forgiveness that is new every morning. These are huge, real-life, lasting decisions impacting certainly not just two people, but many people. And marriage is difficult, but it's also one of the most amazing, powerful, meaningful, beautiful, and wonderful things that God designed and he gave to us. Let's not make the mistake of just focusing on the parts that are broken and weak and on our problems and on the bad. Let's focus on God's strength and wonder and gaze at the good. Marriage is not a bad gift. It is a good gift. Marriage predates the fall when everything was perfect, but marriage survived the fall with Adam and Eve. And as Dan Doriani says, to find our place between blind optimism and paralyzing doubt, we may sample the biblical history of marriage. First, the Bible says God designed marriage in heaven. God created Adam and Eve as complementary partners. They were similar enough to be comfortable. Adam called Eve bone of my bones. But they were different enough to be interesting. They were companions to cure each other's loneliness. They were co-laborers to fulfill their mission of governing the world for God. He continues, from the beginning, God designed marriage as a relationship in which we share toil and raise children. But it's also a romantic and physical relationship. After the fall, marriage helps us battle weeds and raise recalcitrant children and channel our sexual impulses. It also teaches us to give grace, to receive grace, and to learn discipline. MacArthur adds, God instituted marriage as the epitome of pleasant, joyful, and fulfilling human relationships. Yet, as Craig Keener warns, the more intimate the relationship, the deeper the wounds of interpersonal friction sear. Intimacy without forgiveness and reconciliation proves difficult. So, let's pray together that God would help us to learn the truth today and to love the truth today. And lastly, most importantly, as we leave here, for us to live the truth on these topics. So, let's pray together. God, we come before you this morning, and we bring this very important topic and this truth. We're so thankful that you've taught us, that you've given us your heart and your mind on this topic of marriage, of divorce, and of remarriage. And God, you know how hard it is for us. You know the emotions, the situations of every single person here, what they've been through, what we will go through. And God, we just give our lives to you again this morning and ask that you would conform us to your image for our good and your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right, point number one in your outlines, recognize worldly questions. Let's read verses one through three again. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Matthew tells us that Jesus has finished his parable teaching phase in Galilee, and he's on the move. And I'm going to put up a picture for you of Jesus' route, which will save me at least a thousand words from our uh, time together here trying to explain it. 
Jesus is leaving Galilee for the last time, and he's making his way to Judea, traveling down the east side of the Jordan River on his way to Jerusalem, if you follow that red line. Now, Jesus is still super famous, super popular. He's healing, uh, working many miracles. But remember, not all who follow him are real disciples. In fact, Craig Blomberg points out that from a human perspective, these chapters are tied together by the impending sense of Christ's condemnation by the Jewish leaders. From a divine perspective, Jesus increasingly reveals God's condemnation of the Jewish leaders. And the Pharisees, again, are trying to trap Jesus. And this time, they think they've found the hard question that will break him. I think they looked at each other and they thought, no matter how he answers this, he's toast. Now, why was this question a minefield for Jesus? How did the first century world answer this question? Well, there was actually a giant debate between two of the pharisaical schools of the day on this topic. And they based their positions, both of them, on Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. And I want to read it for you. Here's what it says. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. So the Shammai school looked at this and placed emphasis on the word indecent, and they took it to refer to sexual unfaithfulness. The Hillel school, on the other hand, placed the emphasis on the word anything and allowed divorce for any unseemly act, including if she burned the matzos, if she burnt dinner. Leon Morris tells us that a little later, Rabbi Akiba interpreted the words, if she finds no favor in his eyes, to mean that if he found someone prettier, he could proceed to divorce her. What's clear from the wording of this question is that the door for a man to divorce his wife at this time was open so wide that they're wondering if there's any reason that it's, or a situation where it's not okay. And the Greek and Roman culture of the day uh, had a bar that was even lower. Now, we could dive more deeply into the historical context, but here's the main point. Recognize worldly questions. While they're claiming to be spiritual, the Pharisees see marriage through the world's eyes. Marriage is seen as a commercial transaction, not a lifelong covenant. The question effectively sounds like this. Jesus, can we Jewish men divorce, put away, send away, dismiss our wives as soon as they do anything we don't like so that we can protect our rights and our freedoms? For most of the first century world, marriage was plan A and divorce was plan B. Ready at hand, available to be invoked at a moment's notice. Why wouldn't you? This is the way of thinking that is standard in our world today. Any group of guys talking about their wives is likely to end up talking about 
how dumb she is and how he could never understand her. She has all these unreasonable demands and then congratulate each other uh, for how much superior they are and glad for not giving in to any of this rubbish. On the other hand, any group of women talking about their husbands is likely to sound about the same. And sadly, this is often true for Christian men and women too. As John MacArthur notes, Many marriages, including a tragic number of Christian marriages, seem to be little more than a socially recognized battleground where warfare between the spouses is the rule and harmony the exception. So I want us to stop and recognize that this is a worldly way of thinking about marriage and it leads us to feel trapped like a victim who should either lay down the law and demand our rights, get what we deserve, or give them the boot. We should not go into marriage carefree because plan B is close at hand and available for any cause, as the Pharisees say, if plan A doesn't work out. But I want to make unquestionably clear for all of you this morning that even this teaching has been twisted by sinful people. Christian men especially and used against their spouse. Physically, verbally, sexually, and emotionally abusive Christian men have used the patient, long-suffering, forgiving covenant of marriage to repeatedly mistreat, demean, and even beat up their wives. And I want you to know, God is watching. He is appalled and angry that any person, especially one of the people claiming to be his son would treat any person, especially their bride and fellow heir in Christ, in this way. And the pastor elders at Orchard have zero tolerance for this. And we plead with you, if you even wonder if you're in a situation like this, reach out and get help. Talk to us. Talk to a trusted friend. Talk to a counselor. Talk to the authorities. It is not loving to an abuser who claims to love you to continue suffering abuse in silence, all alone. God wants abusive people to be confronted and the innocent protected. May it never be that teaching from this pulpit allows anyone to use the name of Jesus to mistreat another person. The immediacy of addressing your own safety or that of your family should always come way before even thinking about divorce. I've been asked in forums before, what is it that makes you angry? This is at the top of my list. But we must be careful not to let our anger at sin in marriage turn to anger at marriage in general. James Boyce reminds that the problem is not with the institution of marriage since marriage is God's idea. It was God who brought the first bride and the first groom together in Eden after all. Everything God does is good. The problem is sin. Or to put it another way, the problem is with our own hard hearts, <clears throat> which Jesus refers to explicitly in verse 8. So let's have Jesus take us back to Eden now as he answers the Pharisees. The trap that they set for him will fail as we remember God's perfect design. Number two in your outlines, remember God's design. Let's start reading in verse 4. He answered them, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, 
Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So how does Jesus avoid the minefield while protecting and defending the truth? Well, he takes us farther back than Moses to the more original, the weightier, to God's original design for marriage. He takes us back to creation. Jesus wants us to know that divorce is not plan B based on three reasons in God's original design. Reason number one in verse four, by reminding us that God created humans from the beginning, male and female. Now, God imagined, designed, and created the idea and the reality of male and female. And he also imagined, designed, and created marriage, the joining of one male and one female for life. And the designer creator has the final say. Jesus knew here, when he includes this, that fallen people would change his design. That we would have male marrying male and female marrying female. And we would also change his design by having one male or female marrying multiple times. In verse 5, Jesus explains reason number 2. When two complementary fleshes or genders leave their families and cleave to one another in marriage, their two fleshes are bonded into one. No longer two bodies, but one, as the message paraphrases it. And the term that's translated hold fast in verse 5 means to join together, to cling to, to glue together, cement, fasten firmly together. And flesh here is talking about our bodies and about the sexual act which unites a husband and a wife in the most intimate fashion, and God designed it only for marriage. This special cementing through sex is for marriage, but marriage is much more than sex. It's also a covenant, meaning that you're not married to a person because you have slept with them. On the other hand, let's not downplay the human body aspect of marriage because when one spouse dies and they leave their body behind, the marriage covenant is broken. There is no human marriage in heaven. Reason number three that Jesus gives us from creation in verse six, and made famous by thousands of wedding ceremonies, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So this union is not merely a man-made union. When a man and a woman get married, it is God who's joined them together. And there's two different words used here. So what we people do, we hold fast, right? What, what God does here is joining together. And the definition of that is to yoke together. And how many times is this joined word used in the New Testament? Only twice here and in the parallel passage in Mark. And I really love this picture. I don't want to push it too far, but picture this. As you hold fast to each other in marriage, God locks you into a yoke with your spouse, like a pair of oxen or horses. There's work to be done for God. And you help each other, pulling more when the other is weaker or tired or struggling. If one goes down, we both go down together, but we can also help each other up. Now, in contrast, again, picture that image, kicking or goring the ox next to you, even if at times he or she is stubborn or lazy or rude or heading off in the wrong direction, it's never going to help you. 
But you can help to pull them back on track. And you can tell them when they're hurting you. And pray with all your might that the master will deal with them. Also, we know that oxen don't unyoke themselves, do they? That's something the master does. And God doesn't unyoke us until one of us dies. Though he does recognize situations where one of the oxen breaks the yoke and the two are no longer bound. So with so few words, Jesus has reminded us of God's design for marriage. One man, one woman, prioritizing their relationship above all other connections, joined by God and by their physical union, yoking them together for life. It's so cool. So, Pharisees, Jesus says, that's what I originally intended. And no, divorce was not plan B in the beginning. Unfortunately, instead of soaking in this amazing teaching, they didn't come to learn. They came to trap, remember? And perhaps almost gleefully, they think, we've got him right where we want him now. But at a minimum, they ask what seems like a fair question. If that's the case, why did Moses say we could? And Jesus sees the hard hearts behind the questions, and he brings our passage to its zenith. So look with me at point number three, repent of a hard heart. Reading in verse seven, they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. They think they have him on a scriptural technicality. Uh, ha, you're teaching something different than Moses commanded. Clearly, no matter what, they don't believe that they're standing before the second person of the Trinity, do they? Any person who would see that the one speaking is the one who commanded and gave Moses every good thing that he said would understand that. But they don't believe, nor do they want to learn. So Jesus pulls no punches, and he calls out their hard hearts in his reply. On the other hand, we have to admit it seems like a fair question. Why is Jesus teaching something different than what Moses taught? Is this a contradiction in the scriptures? Well, no. In fact, what we have here is another worldly question that has twisted scripture. MacArthur explains that a careful reading of the Deuteronomy 24 text shows that far from commanding divorce, the passage doesn't teach about divorce at all. Moses was giving a command with regard to a particular case of remarriage. The passage neither commends nor condemns the reason and procedure for the divorce that's mentioned there. And I think Boyce's paraphrase is very helpful. What the text actually says is something like this. If a man marries a wife and she does not find favor in his eyes, and he writes her a bill of divorce and sends her away, and she marries another man, and her second husband also writes her a bill of divorce and sends her away, then the first husband must not marry her again. God's law given in Deuteronomy 24 is to protect faithful wives who were being divorced without a legal document and whose first husband was claiming that they were still married and trying to force her back. As Leon Morris says, this is a long way from commanding. The Pharisees assume 
that the dissolution of marriage was part of the will of God in instituting the married state, and this Jesus denies. Which brings us back to carefully look at verse 9, especially the exception that Jesus gives, where it is uh, not a sin to divorce and to remarry. Let's read verse 9 again. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Jesus starts here with, and I say to you, meaning I claim to speak with singular authority on this topic, God's authority. So it means they and we can't dismiss whatever's coming next. God designed marriage and he has something important to say to us about it. Jesus is not changing his mind. Divorce is not plan B. At the same time, even in this context, addressing his adversaries who are trying to trap him on a specific point, he says there is an exception where divorce and marriage is not sinful. Now, there are several interpretations by great godly scholars and pastors on what this means and how to apply it. And as I bring what I believe to you this morning, I do so humbly. I also ask that you take a moment to consider how your own life's circumstances and decisions, your upbringing and your Bible study have shaped your beliefs. And then let's seek to learn together, not to convince ourselves that we're right. Let's not approach this like the Pharisees with a hard heart. Let's repent of a hard heart because a hard heart is like a stiff neck. It doesn't want to receive God's word. It doesn't want to believe. Just like a stiff neck doesn't want to change course. And every one of us here this morning needs to change course in different ways to be transformed by God in how we think about marriage. So I want us to start with a question at the shallow end of the pool here and work uh, as we wade out deeper together, okay? Question number one, why did Matthew include the sexual immorality clause, but Mark, in his parallel passage, did not? Is there really any exception? Well, Blomberg can help us answer this question when he says probably Mark simply takes this exception for granted, since in both the Jewish and Greco-Roman cultures, divorce and remarriage were universally permitted and often mandatory following adultery. So Matthew merely spells out several parts of Jesus' dialogue more fully than his largely, uh, to his largely Jewish Christian audience. So we can trust that Jesus did say, except for sexual immorality. Question number two. Since Jesus did not give any other exceptions here, is sexual immorality the only accepted reason for divorce in God's eyes? Well, back on April 5th of 2020, at the height of the COVID lockdown, I preached a message titled, Good Answers to Difficult Marriage Questions. And it was on verses from 1 Corinthians 7. And for a deeper dive on this topic, I encourage you to go back and listen to that. But I want to read you verses 12, 13, and 15, which I would argue show us that sexual immorality is not the only exception provided for by God. Here's what it says. If any brother has a wife who's an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who's an unbeliever and, she, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. 
But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So we could summarize this by saying that abandonment of a Christian by an unbelieving spouse is also a path to divorce and remarriage. This leads us to question number three. If Jesus didn't give us every exception, what is the full list of exceptions? Now, I warn us here to not be looking for loopholes. We, we might be asking question number three with a hard heart and find ourselves asking the same worldly questions of the Pharisees. But with all humility, God, can we understand the situations where you permit divorce and remarriage without that being adultery? As I've sought to know the answer to that and weighed it in real life over multiple situations and people, I've found it invaluable to understand better the very essence and heart of marriage. Tim Keller says this, in sharp contrast with our culture, the Bible teaches that the essence of marriage is a sacrificial commitment to the good of the other. At the heart of the biblical idea of marriage is the covenant. Now, there are many sins in every marriage, but they do not break this covenant. There are also sins that do break the marriage covenant. And in so doing, the man and the woman are no longer yoked to each other in marriage, in God's eyes. And to remarry then is not to commit adultery because the covenant has been broken. So please listen to these words by Craig Blomberg. This is a lengthy quote, but it is so good, so good. So please listen carefully. Very helpful here. Perhaps the best approach is to ask what these two exceptions of Jesus and Paul have in common. Both destroy at least one of the two fundamental components of marriage, either the leaving and cleaving or the one flesh unity. Both leave one party without any other options if attempts at reconciliation are spurned. Both recognize the extreme seriousness of divorce as a last resort and as an admission of defeat. These observations seem to leave the door open for divorce as a final step, as perhaps the lesser of evils when all else has failed, similar to excommunication for unrepentant sinners. To open this door, of course, means that some will abuse their freedom and walk through it prematurely. And undue attention to the exception clause of verse 9, risks losing sight of Jesus' overall point that divorce is never desirable. Married people should always be seeking ways to improve and enhance relations with spouses rather than wondering how they can get out of the commitments that they have made. Those who divorce and or remarry on any grounds must admit failure and repent of the sins that led to the dissolution of their marriage and vow to remain faithful to any subsequent relationships. A new marriage is not continuous adultery. At most, the first sex act with a new partner is what violates the previous relationship, end quote. Now, a few years ago, I, I needed to be able to see some of these concepts. I needed to, a visual aid to better understand it. So at the risk of trying to put this very complex issue into boxes, I do want to share a couple of slides that I created for myself and for the elders. Much wisdom, of course, is still needed in understanding what God wants for each individual marriage, but I hope this is helpful in clarifying. 
It's going to look pretty small up there. My apologies for that. Um, but I'll walk us through this uh, from left to right. That first note at the top, the key. So I have a little broken heart, meaning a broken covenant of marriage. But I also have a big capital S that stands for sin being committed. So first of all, on the left, the Bible speaks of sins of sensuality. This word means the enjoyment, expression, or pursuit of physical, especially sexual pleasure. While this is clearly sin against both God and against your spouse, you're still married. This word is never used in the context of divorce or a broken covenant. Secondly, right next to that, if a couple divorce legally with the state, but no sin has broken their covenant, they're still married in God's eyes at this point. So in this situation, to marry someone else would be adultery. This is actually the exact situation that Jesus is speaking to his audience to in our passage. To avoid adultery, a person in this situation would need to remain single. But let's now move to the next two arrows, which are sins that do break the marriage covenant. In the middle, we have adultery, defined clearly as intercourse with another spouse. This is followed by sexual immorality. And the, this is the word that is used by Jesus here in verse 9, which includes a range of sexual contact with another person that is only moral within marriage. Now, when a person commits adultery or sexual immorality, this breaks the covenant, and the couple are not bound by it in God's eyes. Knox Chamberlain says, Jesus permits divorce in this case because where sexual immorality has occurred, the marital bond is already severed. A consequent divorce does not cause the rift, but witnesses to an existing rift. And the final arrow may be very obvious here, but when an unmarried person engages in any sexual activity, they remain unmarried, but all sexual activity outside of marriage is sinful. I hope that's helpful and it clarifies a few things, but honestly, it can lead us to other questions. What about Paul's exception of being abandoned by an unbelieving spouse? What about a couple that are still together, but there's been infidelity in their past? So... I have one more slide for us to work through together. This time, let's start on the right side, the green arrows. At the top there, there are three ways that an innocent spouse may become unmarried. The first is the death of a spouse, as I mentioned earlier, or when an unbeliever refuses to stay married and chooses to divorce a believing spouse, and lastly, when their spouse commits adultery or sexual immorality. In this final situation, an innocent spouse is faced with a very heavy decision. Are they, are they willing to forgive their spouse and to recommit themselves to the original covenant that they made? Are they willing to re-bind themselves together? to, to re-enter the yoke and, in essence, to remarry them. If so, they are married again, and they cannot use this prior sin to threaten or to bail out at any point in the future. I have witnessed the power of godly forgiveness on display in marriages broken by unfaithfulness, 
rejoined by undeserved forgiveness and recommitment. It's one of the most miraculous and wonderful things on earth because it's a living picture of what God has done for every single person who believes in him. He forgives all our sins and joins himself to us in intimate relationship for all eternity. But this is not required or even wise in all situations. On the left-hand side of our slide, we see that if a believer chooses to divorce any unbelieving spouse who has not committed sexual immorality and who wishes to stay with them, or for any other reason other than unfaithfulness, they are still married to God until or unless the covenant is broken by adultery or sexual immorality. And finally, at the very bottom, ongoing sexual activity and a guilty spouse who divorces an innocent spouse after the initial sin has already broken the covenant. It, it is sin still, but it does not break the covenant. That has already been broken. So at this point, some of you may be saying, Nate, that was hard and a bit confusing and very heavy teaching. And if that is all true of marriage... It sounds like we should stay as far away from it as humanly possible. If you're feeling that way, you're actually in very good company because that's exactly what the disciples say in the next verse. But if that's how you're feeling, let me also direct you back to point number two on your outline to remember God's design. The covenant relationship of marriage is a wonderful gift. Tim Keller reminds us that marriage has the power to set the course of your life as a whole. If your marriage is strong, then even if all the circumstances in your life around you are filled with trouble and weakness, it won't matter. You'll be able to move out into the world in strength. However, if your marriage is weak, then even if all the circumstances in your life around you are marked by success and strength, it won't matter. You will move out into the world in weakness. Marriage has that kind of power. The power to set the course of your whole life. It has that power because it was instituted by God. And because it has that unequaled power, it must have unequaled supreme priority. End quote. So let's look at our final three verses and let's apply these truths from God's word to ourselves. Point number four. Receive God's word to you. Let's read starting in verse 10. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. There are eunuchs who have been made by, eunuchs by men. There are eunuchs who have, been made them, who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Jesus is now alone with his disciples his true disciples, and note that looking back on his teaching, they don't ask him a question, do they? It's actually a statement. What they don't say is, you know, Jesus, I really liked that answer you gave to the Pharisees. I've never liked their teaching or their stance on divorce. I'm really glad that you cleared that up. No, listen to what they say. Marriage is so hard 
that if the only reason God allows for divorce is sexual morality, it must be better not to marry. What Jesus said was shocking to them, and it is shocking and extreme to the world today, and honestly, to most of Christianity in the West. But also note that Jesus takes their shocked statement seriously. He doesn't reply, oh, come on, guys. It's not that hard. You're overreacting. No, he says, some are born without the ability or desire to marry. Some have been modified or forced not to marry by men. And some choose to remain single for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. As Jesus speaks of these three categories of eunuchs, we normally just think of a eunuch as one of those, the, the castrated category, his second. But what does Jesus mean with this answer? What does he want them to receive? What word does he want us to receive? First, life in a marriage is uh, not for everyone. It may not be for you as a single person. God does not design or intend for every person to get married. And if you do get married, that you must receive his design, his standard. Divorce is not plan B, which can look maybe trapping, but it's actually meant to give incredible comfort to spouses within marriage. In closing, I want to help each of us receive God's word and apply it. So first, to those here that are not yet married... If you desire to be married, great, but be careful who you marry. And make sure that you both understand what God designed marriage to be. Read Tim Keller's book, The Meaning of Marriage. Start at the very beginning by not writing off every person that you meet by worldly standards and reasons. Now let me be clear here, no one's asking you to date someone that you're not interested in. But the relationship should actually start as friendship anyway. So be a good friend. And over time, you will know if this is the friend to make a lifelong commitment with and covenant. To you singles who don't want to be married, great. But make sure it's for the right reasons. Don't do it to push away commitment or intimacy. Do it because... God has called you to a life of obedience to him, and you're excited about doing that. I agree with Blomberg, who says, in a society that constantly pressures people into hasty marriages, the church desperately needs to encourage all who sense God leading them to remain single for however long or short a period of time to remain faithful to his guidance. Next, to those of you here who have been divorced and are single or remarried, First, I'm just so sorry for you. The pain you've had to endure and the shame that you may carry, so heavy. But I want you to know I, I don't see myself as any better than you. Yes, you are living with the consequences of a failed marriage, but you need not live in guilt. If you've repented of whatever mistakes and sins that you made in your past, you are fully forgiven. And you have the whole rest of your life to love and to serve God and others. Obey him. Trust him 
with your wounds. Battle against the temptation to be bitter. If you're remarried, then be devoted to your spouse. Be committed. Let them know that divorce is not plan B for you. Finally, to all of those who are married, to everyone who's married, I want you to hear these words from Dan Doriani. Every marriage suffers traumas. Our future hinges on our response to the traumas. If we approach marriage with divorce as plan B, it is easy to despair, to let love grow cold, and to flee. The Bible tells us to flee from sin, not to flee from relationships. When something goes wrong, we seek reconciliation. As God sought to reconcile us to himself, we forgive as we're forgiven. After the trauma, we rebuild, end quote. So let's work together as a team to both love and to cherish each other. Love emphasizes this aspect of self-denial and self-giving, and both of those are possible to Christians through the Holy Spirit. Let's love each other. Cherishing, on the other hand, emphasizes a different fact, doesn't it? That you prize your spouse. They're special and unique in your life. And you don't just love them sacrificially. You like them. You long to be with them. You choose to be with them. This, in some ways, is just as hard especially many years into marriage, as just sacrificially loving our spouse. So let us work together at loving and cherishing each other in our marriage, that it may bless us richly and change our lives and bless the world. Will you please stand and pray with me as we're dismissed? Lord, this morning... um, I do thank you for your word and what it teaches us, how it strengthens us, how it encourages us. These are heavy matters, and they touch very emotional nerves for probably everyone here, no matter where they are in their relationship to marriage. And I pray that as we leave here, God, that we would not be discouraged or downcast because of these heavy, hard things, but that we would cling to the God of all strength and might and hope and forgiveness and love and that you would empower us to live out in the hardest way, day to day, this beautiful relationship of marriage or the beautiful life as a single person who's devoted to you, who's loving and serving other people, Uh, These things bring you so much glory. It looks so different than the world out demanding rights and holding grudges. It's so different and only you can help us. So we cry out to you, help us and help us as a church, not to judge, but to encourage and stir each other up in these good things. So we pray this, that you dismiss everyone here uh, in Jesus, our Savior's name. Thank you. You're dismissed.